1: Welcome to the family with Doug Sprinthal,
0: Alex Brand Bernard Rasmussen,
2: co host Catherine Brandt. Oh God, oh, that's wow. real that clear. Terrible. Andy
1: Brand
0: and Cassie Schrader. So
3: Catherine's going to be a guest <laughs> on the show today. One out of twelve. One out of twelve. See the one out of twelve. Right? <laughs> <laughs> <That's
1: to> God. <laughs> we'll be back. Stephen Waldman, our special guest, Sacred Liberty: America's long, bloody, and ongoing struggle for religious freedom. Stephen is next with the family. Doug Sprinthal! Blah, 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 blah.
2: One week and two days away from uh, the third KQ Walzer Tour de Cure bike ride. We are looking for even more people to sign up and ride. They shorten the route due to road construction. It's only 21 miles, so this is going to be easy peasy. Alex and her husband just signed up. They'll be joining us. We sure so will. It, Catherine. it really is fun. Catherine could go, but I think she has yep, to babysit.
4: Right. She's watching she? the children.
2: Oh, <laughs> Just, you yeah. know, you could duct tape them in the bathroom. Bath it. What's it the worst the that could happen?
4: Yeah. yeah, for 21 miles, that would Absolutely. not go
2: okay. over downhill. You
4: call yourself Let a me man. out! Let me out!
0: <laughs> I want to get out! <laughs> no, you
3: not That would be can. really funny.
2: It would be, ugly. I want to stack. I have to poop! <laughs> if you would like to join the team, email me, Doug at Walzer.com, and I will get you all the appropriate information. But please do join us.
1: Absolutely be great to have you. Walzer Automotive Group, Walzer.com. You know, the song has always reminded me of being at a really bad Italian parade. (laughs) (laughs) Ding, dingy,
2: dingy, 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 (laughs) dingy. Like, what the hell? Whatever happened to REM? I don't know. They just kind of went away. They retired on their multi million dollar career. Uh, What's his name
1: again? Michael Stipe. Michael Stipe. He was a crabby bastard. Yeah. He is a very crabby quirky guy. Quirky dude. Yeah, he's rather quirky. Stephen Waldman, Sacred Liberty, America's long, bloody, and ongoing struggle for religious freedom. Good morning, Stephen. Actually, I guess it's afternoon. Good morning. Stephen. Thank you for having me. It's our pleasure. Sacred Liberty offers a dramatic, sweeping survey of how America built a unique model of religious freedom, perhaps the nation's greatest invention. Uh, Stephen Waldman, best-selling author of Founding Faith, shows how early ideas about religious liberty were tested and refined amidst the brutal persecution of Catholics, Baptists, Mormons, Quakers, African slaves, Native Americans, Muslims, Jews, and Jehovah's Witnesses. I'm going to leave it right there, Stephen, because it just got really depressing. (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, we get to it. It's a happy ending at the end of this. this is that there? There is a there is a myth that we all this country started with religious freedom because the the pilgrims came over to avoid harassment, but the the Puritans then went uh, quickly to hanging Quakers themselves oh, for the crime of being a Quaker. So oh, so it was always uh, you know religious freedom early on was like I want religious freedom for myself but not for other people, and. So it was really kind of shallow, and we had these brutal, horrible things that have happened over the last 150 years. Uh, The one that was most shocking to me was that uh, in the 1830s, the governor of Missouri actually issued an order calling for the extermination of all Mormons in the area. Mm So I had no idea. So it's... It uh, it took a lot of sacrifice and a lot of bloodshed and real courage, but we did to get to the happy ending, uh, happy-ish. We did eventually (laughs) develop this. uh, Yeah, there's a little asterisk. There's a little asterisk there, but we did eventually develop this model that I think is is you know as I said one of the greatest inventions and exports that we have and ought to be a model for the rest of the world where we really do have a, a, a lot of religious freedom, and it's very robust. But it, it, took, it took a lot of blood to get there.
1: Why is it, do you think, Stephen, for human beings to always have to struggle over beliefs and always have to fight over beliefs? Because basically... Uh... Now, we do have religious freedom in the United States, except for Christianity's kind of on the downside of that now, and I don't know why they singled Christianity out. I'm not that religious a guy, Stephen, but, you know, my mother was a big-time Roman Catholic, and I loved my mother. And, look, I'm not smart enough to know if there is or is not a God, but all the people on the the, the very far left, because these were pretty far-right-believing people, really, you know, close to the best. Well, on the far left now... We condemn people and actually try to ruin their lives if they don't think and believe what we think and believe. So how is that any different than a religious belief? Society at large will always persecute people <clears throat> who will
3: let themselves
1: be persecuted. But we, did we let ourselves be persecuted? Oh, yeah. Christians right now are totally letting themselves
4: Why are they?
1: Stephen, do you know why, why that is that Christians are putting it up, up with this and why it's necessary? If you don't believe what I believe politically, I hate you. What is that?
0: Well, I, on the on the last point of like why does this conflict kind of persist? I think there is a little bit of human nature in here, which mm-hmm. is that if you feel when it comes to religion anyway, when you feel that you have found the true way, yeah. It's it gets to be hard to say to have a kind of live and let live attitude about other folks who you think are really, you know, damning themselves to eternal hell mm. for their beliefs. So it's even though it's it's easy for mm-hmm. me to say we should you know, be tolerant of that, There's, there is something that kind of cuts against the nature of religious belief. And that's why the whole approach that we came up with, and James Madison was really key, was so revolutionary, because he was saying, actually, if you want to encourage religion, the best way is to leave it alone, and to actually have this kind of tolerant attitude, yeah. because that will end up everyone... With everyone I guess I disagree with the premise in this case that the reason we had this persecution was that we let it or that different groups let it happen. I mean, these were brutal efforts. And believe me, the Mormons fought back hard when they were being massacred and the Catholics fought back hard. But when you're dealing with, you know, a majority that has a, a way that it wants to uh, wants to go, there's not a lot that you know, the minority can do, but they did. And there's a lot of like incredible bravery. I mean, the Jehovah's Witnesses in the 1940s, um, small religion, uh, but they were being rounded up, beaten up, mobs set upon them. One guy was castrated because he refused to Eww. salute the flag. And their response was to go to court. And they ended up suing and, and winning all these cases that ended up with uh, helping the rest of us.
1: You know, it's pretty young. Know, Stephen, I was just looking at at, at your uh, your body of work, and my God, uh, co-founder and president of Report for America, a national service program, places talented journalists into local newsrooms. His writings have appeared in The Wall Street Journal, New York Times, Washington Post, Newsweek, National Review, Christianity Today, The Atlantic, First Things. Are you one of the few people that, I mean, Christianity Today and the Washington Post don't have a whole lot in common, so I think that's terrific that you've written for <laughs> both. I'm serious. Really I'm true. being very serious. I think it's great that, that you, could, you could write for both of I those really publications. No, it's true. Well, I've, I've, really, I've really tried, and
2: I, of
0: course, get teased by friends and family <laughs> for <laughs> the, the, the range of different publications. I just had a piece uh, this week in the National Review. Uh, on the one hand, and I have one coming out in a liberal publication soon uh, as well. But I, I feel like, you know, one of the problems we have right now is that people are, as you were alluding to, are so quick to demonize each other yeah. and not take a minute to actually understand the the positions of other people. So, like, as an example, on, on the question that you asked before about Christian modern Christianity being mm-hmm. uh, attacked. Uh, so here, here's my view on that, which you may not like entirely. It's just, I think actually modern Christians, uh, the complaints about persecution are exaggerated and um, politicized. But I also think there's some grain of truth to it, which I know is a bit of a mixed message. But, you know, I, I, I sort of look at the way people talk about it on both sides, and I feel like neither of them are true. Like on the left you'd you'd get the sense that Christians are all a bunch of bigots, and there's nothing to that there's right. nothing to worry about. Mm-hmm. You listen to the religious conservatives, you'd think that you know Christians are being hung up on the on the the hillside um, and persecuted you know in fact, you know persecution is much worse for Muslims and Jews right now than it is for Christians. But I just wrote a piece that basically was, I guess I was, it was an article directed to people on the left for why they shouldn't caricature conservative Christians and trying to help them understand the very legitimate concerns that Christians do have. So even though I think they're exaggerated, I don't think they're made up, and I think there's something real there about the fear that secularism can turn religion into having second-class
2: status. I, I understand what you're saying and I agree with that but there's something that's uh, that really puzzles me is that when the discussion is about Christians, it's assumed that they're all conservative. When there's a yeah. there's a lot of liberal Christians and I happen to like be you. one yeah. and you know, you could argue that the guy was named after was a pretty liberal dude, right? The mm-hmm. last will be first, so on and so forth. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> so yeah, I just, it's yeah, wonder. Yeah. I, I don't know why we're yeah. so quiet that's and why we point. get uh, painted point. with such a broad brush is that we're all, you know. The most uh,
1: Christian group in the country is Hispanics. Yeah, oh, God, yes, absolutely. So,
0: well, it's the, it's the abortion <clears throat> issue, isn't it?
1: Not so much anymore.
0: No, but, I mean, that's what the great divide politically
1: seems to be. I don't know. Stephen, the problem that I have with the whole deal is when when the three attacks that happened in the last couple of months, when a mosque was attacked, it was Muslims. When a synagogue, two of them, unfortunately, were attacked, it was Jews. When uh, a Christian church was attacked in Sri Lanka, it was Easter worshipers. And I do have a problem with that in that and I wouldn't ordinarily, if if uh, President Obama had said Easter worshipers and then Hillary Clinton had said Easter worshipers, but when 16 different liberal politicians referred to those people as Easter worshipers, it indicates to me there's a problem with the, even the word Christianity, which I don't really understand.
0: Yeah, I, I don't know the answer to that one. I do think that there's a, I, I'll give you a little example from my own life that sort of small and funny but I think got at this issue. We were taking our kids to, um, they were at a, a elementary school, Montessori school mm-hmm. and it was like the winter concert and they were up there singing American Pie and they we got to that say, of, did you write the book of love? Do you have faith in God above? Everybody tells you so and I was like, wait, everybody tells you so? That's not the lyric. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I,
1: mean, I remember this song.
2: It,
0: it, it was you know the actual lyric is, if the Bible tells you." So, yeah, the right? Bible tells you so. So right. it's like, why did they why did they take that out? And I think it was this like hypersensitivity of, you know, not wanting to, you know, offend people who might be offended by the word Bible, but they didn't take the other point of view of like, well, yeah, but taking that out might offend someone who does believe in the Bible. Right. So that's like, right. I think that's a sign of example of. What I think is a real like, you know, I, I don't know whether to say it's on the left or among some group that is like really isn't comfortable with talking about religion or, or with religion having an important role role in society. So mm-hmm. I, I do think that's a real thing. But but the other thing I say in the book and and, uh, you know, this this may not go over well, but but is that I kind of almost at the end, I even though this book is mostly a history book, at the very end, I try to get to the current stuff and say, what's the big, what are the problems here that we should actually be worried about? What are the small problems, medium problems, and large problems? Mm -hmm. And I I sort of said this that we've been talking about of Christians or religion being diminished is a problem, but it's a small problem relative to something else, which is the attacks on American Muslims. And the reason I say that is that When you look at the attacks on American Muslims, you have things like uh, communities refusing to um, approve construction of mosques. Um, You have a a poll in 2015 said that almost uh, about only half of Republicans were willing to say that Islam should be legal in America. What? And, you know, Trump calling for the ban on Muslims. So you have this, like, that's fundamental stuff, right? That's like at the heart of religious freedom is the basic ability to worship. Yeah, but we're not yeah. talking about favoritism or anything. That's like, so I feel like the, a line was crossed somewhere between the very legitimate uh, attacks and arguments against Islamic terrorism, um, which, you know, is key. But we've crossed a line, and it's kind of blurred into all Muslims and all Americans. I really like the way George W. Bush had framed things mm-hmm. right after 9-11, where he, he was obviously very tough at going after Islamic terrorism, but he drew this nice, clear line of like, but at the same time, we should embrace, yep. you know, patriotic American Muslims, and that's kind of gotten lost. And I so I, I do think that's a big problem.
2: I, I would agree with you, but I mean, I haven't read your book yet, but it sounds like and I know this, there's a historical precedent, precedent back to the beginning of the country. So first we hate the Quakers, then we hate yeah. the Mormons, then we hate the Catholics, then we hate the uh, Jews, of course, and now it's the Muslims turn. It's like, I don't, either we right. don't study right. our own history, which I think is a, a problem, or we just really get so whipped up and figure these people are totally evil and they're going to overthrow the country. I mean, it's, we have, I don't know if you know this, but uh, Minnesota is a, a pretty white state for the most part, although yeah. Minneapolis and St. Paul have, I think, the largest Somali population in the U.S. and, Excuse like, me. the second largest uh, right. uh, Hmong population. So, you know, we kind of see both sides of it here, and it, it, it is really interesting, and it is disconcerting.
1: You know and I really love? Stephen, I got to I get... Oh, go ahead, sir. Go ahead. No, no, I want to hear what
3: you have to say. No, I was just going gonna... to
0: well, well, I was just going to say that you know you're right that those patterns did repeat, and a lot of it is distressing because you feel like people don't know their own history. the The good news is that it did it did move forward. You know, even though it kind of kept re- recurring, it was a little less horrible each time, yeah. and each each clash kind of established some rights and protections and the consensus grew a little bit each time. So by the time you got to, you know, the end of the 20th century, it really was quite strong. And uh, so we still have to be vigilant because I do think that it can, it can unravel pretty quickly if you're not paying attention to it. And that's part of why I wrote this book is like, I think it's an incredible achievement that we had as a nation, but it's also fragile. And if we don't understand how we got it, we really could squander it.
1: Stephen, I I do need to take a very quick break. Do you have a few more minutes with us, uh, or do you have to go? Yes. You have a few more minutes? Yeah, no, I'd love to. Excellent, we'll just take a very quick break, be right back more with Stephen Waldman, Sacred Liberty, America's long, bloody, and ongoing struggle for religious freedom. We'll be right back in a couple of minutes with the family. Or visit whitingclinic.com to set up your free LASIK consultation. Remember to tell them that I sent you and save $500 on your LASIK.
4: Offer good for a limited time. Call Whiting Clinic for details. Good for both eyes only. Cannot be combined with any other offer.
1: Oh, a little Norman Greenbaum. I like it. I love that. You know what's really hilarious about this? What? what? We used to play this on K. I think we still do play it once in a while. Spirit in the Sky by Norman Greenbaum. Yeah. But Hamilton would let you say Spirit in the Sky, but not Norman Greenbaum. He's like, it's too confusing.
3: I'm like, what? What?"
1: A Jewish guy singing about Jesus? (laughs) But settle down, man. Stephen, Stephen Waldman with us. Uh, Sacred Liberty, America's Long, Bloody, and Ongoing Struggle for Religious Freedom. Stephen, I have to ask you a question, okay? Yeah. Okay, before the interview, did you Google my name? Did
0: I Google your name? Yeah, did you Did you do any research uh, on me? I, I did, but then I got interrupted and didn't get to the end of my search.
1: It's really what great. What I have found? No, no, the great thing about it is I can always <laughs> tell when somebody has Googled my name because you go, I don't know how this will go over. <laughs> <laughs>
4: oh. <laughs>
1: it's very funny. So... Stephen, I, I am not what they pour, portray me to be on on Google. I'm a pretty centrist guy. I, I'm not against
2: religion or or anything like that. But drives a Camaro, smokes Newports, goes to gun rallies. I don't do any of that, that stuff. But in any case, <laughs> I, I look like
1: a, a, a much worse person on Google than I am in real life. And I can always tell when somebody goes. Oh, I don't uh, know how this is going to go over, Tom. But <laughs> uh, I love that, Stephen. I, I actually have a good time. Well,
0: I, now I have to go back and I have to go back now and research more I hadn't uh, hadn't gotten that far
1: well if you can you can come up with anything that's wrong with a human being it's in there believe me uh, just the way th- oh Cassie's <laughs> over here laughing about it because she knows it's true <laughs> but in any case Stephen, great having you on again the book is called Sacred Liberty America's long-bloody and ongoing struggle for religious freedom and I don't want to get too far off topic but I do want to ask you a question because it came up yesterday uh, I had a, a bank meeting, and a bunch of the bankers were sitting and talking to me, and they were asking me about—they were big fans of the—I do a morning show in town as well, and they were talking about the show and all that, and, and it came up that the vice president of the bank didn't see any difference between being uh, religious or being uh, so faithful to your— Political party that it's become a religion. He said, "There's really oh, no man. difference with these people." Do you seem? Do you feel that same way mm. that that you take any issue to the nth degree, it becomes a religion? Yeah,
0: I think you're right, and and then sometimes they reinforce each other too. Yeah, so you have people who have become, uh, you know, partisanship or their political party has become like a religion, and then their religion teaches them that that's the correct party. Yes. Um, So it like double doubly reinforces itself and makes really any kind of actual conversation really difficult.
1: Yeah, it does. It it absolutely does. But I love your take on all these things. And it's just, uh, you know, has has, has, has there been a group of people that haven't been tortured in some corner of the world? My God, it seems like everybody's gone through it.
0: Honestly, you know, if you look at. if, if you look at the statistics and say well who was the majority way back in the beginning of our country the majority religion basically was the puritans the con- which turned into the congregational churches and the anglicans which turned into the episcopalians so if you flash forward to now george washington those two groups make up about 1.4 percent of the population today, so 98% of Americans come from religious minorities that were persecuted.
2: So wait a minute, let me interpret (laughs) this a little bit. You're you're saying that Anglicans are bad at sex, basically.
0: (laughs) No, you're the ones that were persecuting
3: everybody. That's what he's really
1: saying. Doug's people persecuting everyone else. He's Anglican, Stephen, I will tell you that. Technically, they came here because they they were being persecuted.
0: I I Well, that's true, too. Yeah, you're right. Everyone... So, I mean, it is kind of funny. We always talk about this as being a country of immigrants, which is true, but we're also a country of religious minorities. Mm -hmm. And there was this this thing that I really became fascinated by with with James Madison, who is probably the founding father who we owe the most to on religious freedom. He had this idea that was – he said, you know, he was actually kind of skeptical that the First Amendment was going to (laughs) work. Um he, he sort of thought, That's well, that's fine. We should we, we should do that. Love it. But he had this other he had this other thought. Yeah, I love the, the modesty there. The <laughs> other thought he had was that the real way to have religious freedom is to have a lot of different denominations. It was very mm-hmm. it was a really interesting way of looking at it. He basically said he, he loved the idea of religions fragmenting, which we think of as a bad thing, but he thought it was great because then no one religion would ever get so strong that it could dominate the other ones. So he actually had this really incredibly modern view of, I guess, what we yeah. now call pluralism, but it was really almost like this free market of religion where, um, you know, everyone is free to follow their own path, and, uh, and but you make sure that no one religion is, like, crushing the other ones. So the fact that we all... I guess what I'm getting at is that the fact that all in some ways come from religions that have been persecuted is part of why the system is working now. You know, we have this, uh, we all have this heritage as a religious minority um, and it has led to us having a little bit of a all for one, one for all attitude about religious freedom that, you know, we all have to accept differences and accept, religions that we don't agree with or might even be harmful uh, for the whole system to work.
1: Stephen, i to—I got to tell you, my favorite joke of all time, and it has to do with exactly what we're talking about, being judgmental, um, Richard Pryor took over the, the script from Mel Brooks of the movie Blazing Saddles. And uh-huh. the era that's set in the Old West, you know, pretty much, the third group I'm going to mention was the latest group of immigrants to come to America. They were, uh, you know, and people, I think, miss that as part of it. They don't they don't consider what the time period was and what people were talking about. So the third group of people in the joke were the latest immigrants to America and the latest immigrants have always been hated by everybody else. That's how it's always been. Right. So he has this great joke where where all the town they're they're meeting and the mayor of the town's there and everybody's all upset because there are new people coming to town. And I have to clean the joke up, written by Richard Pryor, a brilliant, brilliant writer. I'll, I have to clean up the first two groups because he was very vulgar in his description of them. But he says, We'll take the blacks and the Chinese, but we don't want the Irish. <laughs> Which- I think is the most brilliant joke <laughs> ever written because they were the latest immigrants to America and everybody hated them. It was, it's brilliant.
2: It's really
1: true. <laughs> just
0: it's really gr- true. And, and, you know, I, this kind of, this kind of blew me away. And the, 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 the history part of this since Catholics obviously are at this point are so mainstream in, yeah, in America yep. to go back, look at the period in the 1900s when the Catholics were brutalized and they were, you know, convents were being burned down, and uh, churches being burned down, and they would have, um, it's like school children, I remember this vivid scene of a little uh, schoolboy in Boston, but basically they were forcing him to read the Protestant translation of the Bible in the mm-hmm. public schools, and he refused. It was like an incredibly courageous boy, uh, said, no, I'm not going to read the Protestant Bible. And so the headmaster or the principal just whips his hands until they bleed. And then the other school children like, have this massive civil disobedience, and they refuse to, and they all get expelled. And it was, like, you know, it was exciting in some sense because the school children had such incredible bravery to it. But it also just reminded you of— the, the the persecution and the bigotry against irish catholics in particular oh, yeah. was so strong and the rhetoric in some ways you know you listen to some of the rhetoric and it does sound a little resonant they say they're they're violent and
2: they're going to come over it's more and, than a little uh, resonant take, you can you can just exchange the, the names mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. take out irish catholic and put in yeah. muslim it's the yeah. same it's stuff the same thing, 100 yeah. years later it is
0: yeah. yeah yeah including i'm sure you you heard about the whole fight over Sharia law. Right. You know, this idea that Muslims will have to follow Sharia law really resonant with what people were saying about Catholics and the Pope. Right. You know, that, that you know, to be to be a good Catholic you have to be a bad American was the argument because you're gonna have to follow these foreign laws. Right. And do what the Pope said. And, you know, it happened with John Kennedy and with Al oh, Smith yeah. and what they essentially said was, you know, American Catholics are different. You know, yes, we do have that, but we've, we've charted our own course, and we can be both in favor of democracy and be good Catholics at the same time.
1: Yeah, it's amazing, Stephen. When I was, uh, I guess I was eight years old when John F. Kennedy was elected president, and being, I was going to Catholic school at the time, and I do remember people saying, oh, my God, you people, we're, the Pope is going to be running the country. I remember them saying that over and over again. They were terrified uh, that the Pope was going to run wow. America. Oh, yeah, I remember that very clearly. Wow. It was an amazing time. Isn't that amazing,
0: right it, up until 1960. Yeah. And yeah. then, you know, in Al Smith, the 1928 election, when Al Smith was the first Catholic who lost very badly, partially because of this it, it coincided with the rise, the second incarnation of the Ku Klux Klan. Right. And the second incarnation of the Klan was mostly about Being anti-Catholic, yep. And they would uh, when Al Smith ran, he would. They they basically one of the most amazing ones was they they circulated a photo of the Holland Tunnel, the new tunnel in New York City, and said the real reason this tunnel was built was it's going to be a passageway for the Pope, come (laughs) to
2: America and rule. rule the land
0: what? And that was that was, it was, that was part long. of you know, the real reason
2: there must so have been an IQ like, test you had to the flunk in enough. order to get into the Klan
1: <laughs> <laughs> exactly
2: <laughs> why would the Holland Tunnel
1: be in a uh, he's going to come into New Jersey and then come through the tunnel into <laughs> New York City
2: what because <laughs> <laughs> yes. if he's a that real Christian he could just here. walk on water right he yes. Sne- wouldn't need the e
0: tunnel well then that's true, and he, if he was really smart, he would know that the traffic would be too bad.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. It would be horrible Let's to take try to get mid-town him there. Yeah. Smart Stephen, we need yeah. to talk to you more often. Yeah, A ter- that's ter- that's Terrific that's conversation. That's Sacred Liberty, that's America's that's long, good. bloody, and ongoing struggle for religious freedom. Stephen Waldman, W-A-L-D-M-A-N. The book is available on Amazon and everywhere else. Great conversation, Stephen. What I really like is you probably have... You know, seven people right now sitting at microphones and on the telephone who have differing views, but somehow we all got along. How is that possible? I love it. (laughs) We should
0: franchise this. We (laughs) should franchise
1: it, Stephen. Thank you so much for your time. I hope we talk again soon, sir.
0: Thank you. I would love that. Thanks for having me. Bye-bye.
1: Our pleasure. Isn't it nice to talk to even keel people? Uh,
2: That was interesting that you picked up that he'd Googled you before. Because I kept saying, why is he, what's he worried about? You can tell. (laughs) It's It's like, uh, this might not play very well in Poughkeepsie, (laughs) but um, this might not be
1: very well received. But yeah, I can say, uh oh, he Googled me. (laughs) Because if you haven't Googled my name, you're going to, oh my God, it gets a little harsh. I will tell you that. The worst human being ever born, and he's a friend of Doug Sprintfeld's. Makes it even, it even wor- worse. Even worse than that. Yeah, well, the Anglicans came to America to escape persecution.
2: Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, came over here and started the country, but I, I, it's interesting. I didn't realize we we're only 1% of the population. I no, know. pretty funny. I didn't know yeah, that. because Franklin and uh, George Washington were Episcopalians. And anyway.
1: <laughs> Turtledove and I, once in a while, pop into the Episcopal Church down in Florida, and we mm-hmm. just love the place.
2: Well, it's like Wonderful. Catholic light. It's it twice Catholic. the fun, half the guilt. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they just said, all right, let's keep all this stuff, get rid of the Pope, and you can get divorced if you want to. Uh, yeah, and, but, and you and know, what I was talking marriage. about, there is a very liberal side of the Anglican Church. And, yeah, the fact, the yeah. gay pride uh, uh, rally always starts at St. Mark's, which is the Episcopal <laughs> Cathedral right down the street from the Basilica.
1: Right. Matter of fact, it's so close. When my mother, Toots, moved here from Long Prairie, Minnesota,
2: she didn't go to the wrong
1: one. Did she, she? went to St. Mark's, oh, and that she is. went for a few weeks before she realized this is not a Catholic. There's no confession. Oh, Other
4: God. than that, I, I
2: mean, some they're of the old just, back they're then, not
4: saying all the same words. And some of the old <laughs> churches,
2: they still swung the incense. They too. absolutely did. Yeah, so it was right there, the Basilica,
1: because I I went the first uh, well three months of first grade at the Basilica. That was a very big deal. And by the way, uh, you want to talk about dating myself. Um, When I used to go from our house at 12th and Spruce Place, which is on the, what would that be, the west side, I guess, of Loring Park.
2: Yeah, right by the old Idol Hospital. We walked
1: down a regular street to get to the Basilica. Oh, wow. And it is now I-94. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, my
2: God. That is Your dad's
1: got a few years on him. I (laughs) I point that out. Yeah, it was like a regular two-lane street. And one lane on each side.
3: For Donkey yes. Kurtz.
1: <laughs> oh, boy, don't you have to hit it early, Catherine? In the time you hit the, the original run? wheel. We will be. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But I could picture that in my mind now, looking down that street and seeing that beautiful basilica. Mm-hmm. And it is a gorgeous church. Oh, it's gorgeous. Yeah, well, so St. Mark's. Yeah. Magnificent church. But I remember walking down a little sidewalk on that regular street, and now it's I 94. Pretty amazing. We'll be right back. Another great guest coming up next with the family. What are the things you want to avoid when it comes time to sell your home? Hey, it's Tom with my realtor, Chris Lindahl. If you're like most people, it's things like open houses, staging, decluttering, repairs, maintenance, and all the people coming...
4: If you qualify, you will get an offer in 48 hours or less. And the best part is you get to pick a closing date that is convenient for you and close in as little as three weeks.
1: Go to chrislindahl.com right now to see if you qualify or call 763-401-SOLD. That is 763-401-SOLD. I'm talking to Neil Sheehy, ex-NHL defenseman. Neil, you've had great success following the Nutrimost wellness plan. How much weight did you lose?
4: Tom, I dropped over 63 pounds in 44 days, but more importantly, I know how to keep it off.
1: That's great. What makes Nutrimost different from all of those other programs out there?
4: In addition to my success, I have two brothers and two sisters who had great success on the Nutramost wellness program. And collectively, we all lost a total of 222 pounds on the program. My brother and I were so impressed that we decided to open up a clinic in Plymouth.
1: Find out how and why Nutrimos is unlike any other weight loss plan by attending the Nutrimos free dinner at 6 30 p.m. on Tuesday, June 4th at Jake's in Plymouth. Nutrimos guarantees that you lose 20 pounds or more. Register for the Nutrimos dinner or schedule your immediate consultation. Call 763 333 7337. That's 763 333 7337.
0: And our guest just called in magnificent.
1: We'll Perfect timing, ladies and gentlemen. We are back. Transformed a Navy SEAL's unlikely journey from the throne of Africa to the streets of the Bronx to defying all the odds, Remy Adeleke. How are you? I'm
3: doing great. I'm doing great. How about yourself?
1: Things are going well. So was I close with Remy Adeleke? Yes,
3: yes, yes. Remy Adeleke.
1: Oh, thank you. See? Now I sound like I'm educated. What do you think of that? I sound like I'm smart, which is totally... Very, uh, this is amazing. Just the name of the book transformed a navy seal's unlikely journey from the throne of Africa to the streets of the Bronx to defying all odds. Remy, I'm going to sit here and be quiet and listen to your story. What a great story!
3: Thank you, thank you, thank you. Yes, it's a crazy, crazy journey that I've been on the past two years. Uh, yeah, I um, I was born in Western Africa. My father, he was a well known Nigerian engineer, he engineered one of the First man-made islands in the world, and because of his success, we were really, really wealthy. And then uh, in 1987, the Nigerian government decided they wanted to strip my family and my father of all of our assets. There's so much more to the story. I explained it in a book. And uh, when they, in the midst of fighting the Nigerian government, my dad died. And when he died, we go from rich, traveling the world, nannies, cars, drivers, eating at the finest restaurants, to the poor, having not a nickel to our name. And so my mom, you know, being the strong woman that she is, she permanently relocated my brother and I to the United States, and I grew up in, in New York City in the Bronx, and that's kind of where my American journey starts.
1: Remy, uh, so I have to ask you a question. How old were you when this all happened?
3: I was, I was five, nineteen eighty seven, I was five at the time.
1: You're only five years old and you lose your father, you lose your life, basically. Mm-hmm. Now did your mother come to the United States with you?
3: Yeah, so my mom I tell people all the time, my mom and dad's story is a real coming to America story from the Eddie Murphy film. So yeah. you know, my mom yeah. is American, is American and she met she met my dad in the uh in in the united states in new york and then after they got married five months later my mom moved to to africa with them so you know my mom being an american after my dad died she was just like there's no way i'm raising my kids here in africa so that's like like, i'm permanently relocating back to the bronx New York."
1: so you're in the bronx now you're five years old so how did you get by from day to day without any money at all how did you get by
3: you know, again, my mom. She, you know, she is such a warrior. People ask me all the time, you know, where do you get your perseverance and resilience from? And I always say, you know, I had a living example of it every day of my life. You know, my mom. She worked multiple jobs. Um, she, she was a school teacher in the South Bronx. She started a little writing business on the side. I mean, she, I mean, she worked at art galleries and took jobs. In I mean, she did whatever she could do to provide for my brother and I. It was, it was an absolute struggle for her. Every time I went... You know, my mom didn't have enough food to feed herself. She had just enough food to feed my brother. And I. You know, so uh, we made it because of my mom, you know. But, you know, as I got older, that's when I began to stray in a different direction because I wanted to make a way myself. I was tired of relying on my mom and, and, and what she could do. And that's when I just, I just started doing the various things from, you know, stealing to, to, you know selling drugs to running illegal scams and by the time I was 19 I had built this massive legal enterprise so I was bringing in thousands
1: of dollars a week What a story this is Remy already you're uh, you've gone from 5 to 19 and in that short span you went from this rich kid to a poor kid to now again bringing in a ton of dough but now you're kind of a yeah. kind of a gangster I'm
2: a hooligan Hooligan at heart.
1: You are a hooligan Remy.
3: (laughs) uh, My breaking breaking point where it came for me, I got involved in a deal with a drug dealer that went back. I sold him, you know, a bunch of products that were supposed to last for a certain amount of time. It only lasted for a fraction of that time and he came knocking on my door. And uh, he threatened my life, and essentially threatened my mom's life. And oh. you know, I, I went out into the streets six months back. And then that's when I kind of decided I'm out of this game. And I didn't. I, I laid low for six months until you know I finally decided in, in June of 2002, I need to, I need to get out of here or end up dead or in prison. So that's when I went to go join the military. And uh, that's kind of where my military journey also started. You know, I went to the recruiter's office, and one of the things she did, the recruiter who I ran into, she ran my background and. I found out I had two warrants off my arrest. <laughs> I had a warrant in New York oh. and a warrant in New Jersey, and I got, up, got ready to run out of the office, and uh, and she stopped me, and she said, where are you going? I said, I'm getting out of here before I get arrested. And uh, she asked me if I had a suit. I said, no. She said, yes, black, so have a collar shirt. I said, yes. She said, come back tomorrow. And I came back the next day, and she was in her dress uniform, and she took me to both judges, uh, the judge in New Jersey, the judge in New York, advocate on my behalf, both judges, unanimously to my record. And then she took me to the uh, Navy MEX and she watched the paperwork at the Mets, Now that was how I was able to get into the Navy.
1: Wow. So at this point, Remy, you're only 20 years old, right? Yeah,
3: I'm 20 at this
1: point. You're, at this point, you're 20. So you've been through all that. Now you're going to be – now did you, did you know that a SEAL is what you wanted to be or did you just want to serve to get out of the trouble, get out of the streets of the Bronx? I mean, did you always want to be a Navy SEAL?
3: No, no. You know, when I was 15, I watched a film called The Rock, and that was the first time I was exposed to Navy SEALs. And, you know, when, when I have to watch that film, you know, this little dream kind of, you know, was bursting in me to become a Navy SEAL. But it was like a far-fetched idea, right? It was like you say right now, one day I want to be the president of the United States. Chances are that's not going to happen. So as time passed, you know, that dream of away. But, you know, the, the only reason why I joined the Navy, it was, it was for survival. It wasn't It wasn't out of patriotism at the time. It wasn't... It was just mainly because I needed to get out to survive. Like, oh, my life wasn't going to amount to anything. But when I got to boot camp, um, a Navy SEAL came, and he, he put on a presentation as to what SEALs do and showed his videos and SEALs jumping from planes and driving too and all that. And that's when that dream that I had you know, about four or five years earlier kind of reemerged within me, and I was like, okay, that's my destiny. That's the job that I want for the rest of my life.
1: You know, Remy, I got to tell you something, though. You're only 37 now, so you still could be president.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
2: well, you don't think about it. Late, it.
1: It's never too late. It's never too late. Actually, you're not old enough yeah. to be president yet, are you? You think uh, Barack Obama was 42?
2: No, you have to be 35. Oh, 35, I, I, that's yeah. right.
1: And yeah, you're right, 35. But I think the, the yeah, youngest yeah, president yeah, yeah. was I, I think Barack
2: Obama. You know? I'll be 37.
3: Yeah, I'll be 37 in August, so I think i, I think I still got a shot right now.
2: Yeah. Go
1: ahead and run. Everybody else is. Yeah, everybody else is running, Remy. You may as well run. Start your own party, the Adeleke party. Yeah. I like it. I could become a follower of the Adeleke yeah. party. I'm not hey. too wild about it. Yeah,
3: that'd be great. So hey. you're a Navy if SEAL I, if, now. If I get a lot of attention for it, I think
1: I'll do it. <laughs> I like it, man. Like I said, I'll, I'll campaign for you. What we have to choose from right now is not exactly what I'm looking for, so uh, I, I could I could do that in a, in a minute. Did you know? Well, first of all, are, were you chosen uh, to be a, to, to try SEAL training, or did you all of a sudden decide I want to be a Navy SEAL? How did that happen?
3: Yeah, I, I decided. Yeah, I decided I wanted to do it after watching the presentation at, at, at boot camp, and then you know I, I couldn't go straight to plod, which plod is basic underwater demolition SEAL training right. out of boot camp because I wasn't qualified. I couldn't swim. Didn't have the academic scores and I was super skinny. I could barely do a push up. So you,
2: so you I couldn't had to, swim I had to, or had to do a push, push, push up and you thought the seals <laughs> was
3: in your position. Great yeah, idea, Remy. Yeah, I mean. yeah, 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 I had to choose it. My body didn't line up with the vision at the time. <laughs> that is unbelievable. And, uh, and so I got to my first family from Naval Hospital Camp Edelton, and i and uh, I just started training, man. I just started making up workouts and I would run three miles to the pool, jump in the pool, flail around and then run three bounds back home and I did this religiously that's that's how I you know, I said I, I wanted it. You know, in field training you can't be chosen to go to field training. You have to you have to go through the process to to, to, to you have to you have to make the choice to go and then you gotta get selected once you go. So uh, after I made the choice I went through the selection process and I got accepted and I and, and I ended up going to field training.
1: That is unbelievable. Uh, we're talking to Remy Adeleke about his book Transformed a Navy SEAL's unlikely journey from the throne of Africa to the streets of the Bronx to defying all odds. You have defied all the odds. Uh, how did you yeah. How do you think your family kept it together? As your mother and and you and your sibling, right? There were just 3 of you? Yeah,
3: yep, yeah, yep, yeah, yep.
1: Yeah. Now, did you help yeah, have...
3: There 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 uh my mom. She she kept it together oh, you know, really really well, man. My you know, she, uh, she's so happy, uh,
1: you know, as to how things turned out. God, I just, you know, so your strength probably did come from your mother. Your mother's, you know, a very strong woman. Um, it, what did she think of all this while this was happening? Uh, what did she think of all of it?
3: She, well, at first, she was, when I went to the middle, she was terrified. She was just like, a, she had a brother. Her brother. He was in the Korean War, and uh, he got he got hit with a, with a grenade, and he was, like, permanently crippled for the rest of his life. I mean, as a matter of fact, he was in the VA hospital for the rest of his life. Uh-oh. And so, you know, my mom was just petrified. But uh, as, as, as time went on, and as I, as I got, you know, deeper into the military, and then as I got deeper into the field teams, and as she began to learn, you know about the steel teams and how we are well trained and how we do get the best equipment. And, we you know, you know she that's when her, her trepidation kind of fizzled out a bit, you know. And, and so, yes. Yeah, and then when I made it through steel training, she was just like a lady. I mean, she was, she was just so proud because, you know, one, there's not that many African-Americans that make it into steel training, let alone make it through steel training. I think I was around the 50th in the history of the steel teams and the steel teams was created in the 1960s by Kennedy. And yeah. then less than 1%. So, so my mom in my graduating class, especially being the only African American
1: my graduated, he was just lady. He was just like, "Wow, <laughs> I didn't see this coming." And before <laughs> before uh, Kennedy was his, his UDT, right? Underwater Demolition Teams, pretty much, right?
2: Yep,
3: yep, yep. It was on UDT, and then he uh, for for Vietnam, he decided we needed a new unit, and uh, that's when he in uh, January first, nineteen sixty-two, he said SEAL Team, so turned the UDT into the Navy SEAL.
1: Uh, so now I see, uh, I'm looking at your bio right now, it says uh, Navy SEAL, entrepreneur, writer, successful husband and father, and actor. You got it all going still, Remy. It you're, you're sounds like you're a hard-working guy.
3: <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, I mean uh, for me, you know, I just try to, when I leave this earth, I want to know that I've exhausted every part of this shell called the human body. And, um, you know, a lot of that has come from me being a SEAL, you know, just Striving for excellence, always striving to get better, challenging myself, not being content with the norm that it just drives me, man. So I'm always trying to be open to new opportunities and seeing how I can operate on those opportunities, you know.
1: It is amazing. Remy, you just you just left uh, service, what, two years ago? Two, three years ago?
3: Three years ago,
1: yep. God, it's one in a one. You got a whole world. Well, first of all, we talked to you in running for president, so that's good.
3: <laughs> <laughs> just, yeah. I just think it's a good it's you know funny, it's funny. It's funny you know, people, people say that to me all the time, like literally. I get messages on like Instagram and Facebook and they're just like, You should run for president. And I'm just like, "What is, like, is this cover where this come from? And I went to a Barnes and Noble and so you go on my Instagram you'll see uh, a, a video of me walking into uh Barnes and Noble to see my book for the first time. And if you keep swiping, you'll see that uh, on, on the, that my book was put in the presidential hopeful section by one of the staff members. <laughs> of the so I, I, think I, I think someone might be trying to tell me to do something. I'm <laughs>
1: telling you, Remy, I'll, I'll be your vice president. We'll go around kicking everybody's butt. What do you think? I'll hold you to that. I will hold you to that. Remy, you're a good man. It was great to have you on the show, sir. Uh, Remy Adeleke, it's A-D-E-L-E-K-E. The book is called Transformed, A Navy Seal's Unlikely Journey from the Throne of Africa to the Streets of the Bronx to Defying All the Odds. Remy, uh, what an admirable guy, man. Your, your, your father and your mother did a great job, and you picked up and 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 carried that torch yourself. So great talking to you, sir, and, and all the luck. And the book is available on Amazon, too, I should mention, ladies and gentlemen. Remy, thank you. Yes, sir.
3: Great talk. Thank you, thank you, and thanks for having me on the show. It's an honor, a blessing. You're a good man.
1: I love people like him.
0: Yes, got What a great story. Yeah, I mean, yeah. your
1: dad gets killed. You're on. you rich as hell in Africa, and your dad gets massacred. And the...
0: I, I missed the part of why. What. What happened? Why was his father killed?
1: Nigerians decided that they didn't want him around anymore. Oh. So they wiped out <laughs> pretty much. Yeah, Nigerians had a bit of a murder in their history. Yeah, they kind of like. Like that murder thing. But yeah, his father, they murdered his father. And then mom, who's an American, brings him back to uh, to the streets of Bronx because they don't have any money. I mean, it's amazing. Go from being extremely wealthy to totally flat broke. Yep. What a great story. But that's America, isn't it? It is. That's what I love. People, ah, America sucks. Oh yeah, why don't you ask Remy Adeleke what he thinks of America? You know what I mean? He did pretty well. Yeah i just think it's so i think it's terrific so doug we're about to start in about 10 minutes we're going to start car selling secrets That's what, do, right. you got co- what well, do you got cooking uh,
2: you're joined by one of my favorite people on the company brett judy's he's uh, brett, he people. says that to everybody he brings in you. i'm so you wouldn't know this to look at him but the first time i met brett i was working for the luthers running a mitsubishi store on penn avenue with uh, ted turp and the used car guy that I know says, hey, we've got this problem. We had a customer on a car. We sold it out from under them. They're really mad. You've got the same kind of thing. Can we show and tell it? Which is something that dealers will do with each other, right? they mm-hmm. It basically means, yeah, come grab my car, try to put your deal together so you don't get in trouble. And if it works out, you can just buy it from us and sell it to them.
4: Sure.
2: So this guy comes in. And imagine the guy sitting to your right, Catherine. With a Jufro about this big.
0: Uh, <laughs> what? Jufro?
2: We'll take a break uh, here and be back in five minutes uh,
1: with uh, car-telling secrets. What? What?
4: You, you can see that.